Years ago, Liz, I was working in the management consulting business, and our group got a new administrative assistant. She took this job. It wasn't exactly the job she wanted, but she was getting into the right place. Right, that happens. Right, super smart. And she was, of course, really smart and really competent, and she was great at her job. What she did that I thought was really bright was she started volunteering for all kinds of projects that kind of led her closer and closer to the work that she wanted to do. And within about a year, she actually got an opportunity to run some really small development projects. And I thought that was really wise and it was fun to see. But here's what's so difficult. And and you and I, I think, have both experienced this. There's a real status quo bias, right, with people and with companies. And they kind of get a brand for like, oh, this is who this person is. Mm-hmm. And even though she was doing more and more work that was like a consultant and like a design person, she'd still come in as an administrative assistant. And ultimately, she actually had to leave the company and get another job to get the job she wanted because she was still... She just couldn't shake the way the people knew her as an assistant. Exactly. I mean, she to get the opportunity that she wanted and she deserved, she had to leave because people just couldn't see her outside of that old role. And I think that's really common. You know, it's kind of too bad when that happens, but it does happen all the time. We never take the recommendation to leave your job and do something else lightly. It's a big step, but sometimes it's absolutely the right thing to do to give yourself a new brand and create new opportunities. From Wondery, this is I Hate My Boss, workplace drama, comedic relief. I'm Larry Seal. And I'm Liz Dolan. Have you ever felt like you're trying your best at work, but no matter what you do, you've been put in a position to do nothing but fail? It happens. Our first listener, Kelsey, sure is in that position right now. Here's what she wrote. I've been digging into resources that sum up what I'm experiencing at work, and I found an article at Harvard Business Review. I'm dealing with set-up-to-fail syndrome. I'm a paralegal in a firm that was a small little boutique where cases were handled on a sort of all-hands-on-deck, no-explicit-duties kind of way. We've become an actual medium-sized firm in my four and a half years here, which meant way too many cases to just wing it and meant we needed to develop actual procedures. I was thrilled that the firm was moving this way, but I got caught in the growth spurt. While new paralegals were taught the standard operating procedure off the bat, I was the paralegal that was around for all the mess-ups that proved we needed new procedures. So I went from being the star paralegal to the person my boss thinks of when he thinks of our firm's past failings. You're nodding your head, Larry. I know you've seen this syndrome before. It means my work is heavily scrutinized and my success is ignored while my colleagues who learned from my mistakes soared. All of this being said, I'm also in my late 20s. As you guys often say, I probably care way too much about what people think of me. But when it's your boss, how do you let it go? So First, let's talk about this set up to fail syndrome. We will put a link to it in our episode notes. So it's an article by Jean-Francois Manzoni and Jean-Louis Barsou. And I had never read it before. So thank you, Kelsey, for recommending it. And the thing that surprised me about it, when I, whenever I hear set up to fail, I just feel like, oh, you're in a no-win situation. Right. No, these two academics have really broken it down way more and described a lot of what Kelsey is sort of laying out for us, that you get into this spin cycle almost with your boss where you do become the person who represents past failings. And they write a lot in the article about how once that happens, you know, it is super hard for the person in Kelsey's position to break out of that 
And it's equally hard for the boss to understand that they've put Kelsey in that situation. And they're just going to keep upping the ante about expecting more because there is this expectation that she is not up to the task. Yeah, you see what you expect, right? And so if you see like— That's oh, a much simpler way of putting it, Larry. Well, yes. you yes. know, I'm, I'm a simple man, simple words. <laughs> if you're expecting that somebody is going to struggle or someone is going to drop the ball, that is what you tend to see. It's that old line about life is what you choose to attend to, right? You see what you pay attention to. And if you see successes— if you see connection, if you see winning, that's what you're going to pay attention to. And the problem here is it gets associated with a person, which mm -hmm. I think is the point, right? That's what they write about in this Harvard Business Review story. The research that they did actually showed that bosses tend to attribute the good things that happen to external factors. So yep. Kelsey doesn't get points for what yep. she is doing right, whereas the newer people actually get credit for following the procedures and doing the right thing. In short, what the setup to fail syndrome is, is that standards change. An employee, like longtime valued employee, makes a mistake, doesn't meet the current new standards. The boss notes it and then starts to micromanage mm. that employee. And then that just gets you in a spiral because, of course, then the employee will be performing at an even lower level and you start spiraling down. So it will take Kelsey a string of successes in order to really have a boss realize that where she is in that person's head is wrong. The time you need to change someone's perception of you, Kelsey, is much longer than you want it to be. Yep. So you might set up a few things you're going to do that are just boffo for the boss, and you think, okay, I can break myself out of this rut. But actually, the work that you need to do to contribute at a higher level are long, slow projects. And so it might not be as satisfying as you want. So what you don't want to do, Kelsey, though, to get out of that is set unrealistic goals that there's no way you will be able to accomplish. I think that sort of human nature would be to like prove, I'll prove to this boss that I can do it. And unrealistic goals aren't going to get you out of that syndrome either. The other way you can look at this, Kelsey, is you can address this directly and say, look, I feel like I'm stuck in a place where I'm getting associated with things we used to do in the past. I very much want to be successful here. And I feel like you and I are in a cycle. I'd really like to see if we can hit the reset button on that. And the fact that she's been so successful in the past, she's still in her 20s. I'll bet she could pull this conversation off. And mm -hmm. if she can't, worst of all worlds, it goes back to the story I had at the top of the show, which is sometimes the best thing to do do is to be able to shift your brand, shift your opportunities, and find that next thing. Yeah, I think of it as sort of consolidating the growth that you've made mm -hmm. and then taking that out into the marketplace in a slightly different package. Mm -hmm. So good luck, Kelsey. Thank you so much for sharing your question and uh, the story from Harvard Business Review with us. Good luck, Kelsey. Our next question comes from Lauren. She recently started at a new company that's trying to implement a new corporate culture, but is being held back by tenured employees who are actively resisting the change. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. You bet. Lauren, what are some of the cultural conflicts you're seeing at your job? So I'm new to my company, and I just joined um, in the last six months. The company is going through this sort of culture change, and they were really open about this in their interviews with me. So I knew about this coming in. They said this was actually one reason why they wanted to hire me, because they felt like I worked in the new way that they wanted people to work. Mm. When I arrived, I was really excited, and I found that the so-called new culture has not really taken root yet. 
And there's a really big disconnect in the way people are working um, mm. between kind of the, the tenured employees and the people who are new to the organization. Yeah, I can, I can imagine that's hard. If you're one of the first of the new breed, then you have to help engineer the change. So how's that going? Well, <laughs> what happens in practice is when there's a problem that needs to be solved, a tenured employee will have one practice where they might go to their manager, say, I have this problem, how do you want me to fix it? And a newer employee will go through the same process of discovering the problem and actually just go ahead and fix it and be kind of proactive. And that causes problems between the new employees and the tenured employees because they're working very differently. Sure. And managers have expectations that, you know, people will talk to them about the problems that they're solving or that they'll just sort of report on the things that they're doing. And new employees don't really do that. So it is sort of like working in two different companies at the same time. Do you feel like they gave you a different set of operating instructions when you came into the company than everybody else has? Absolutely. In fact, they said that <laughs> when I came through. They said, you're working in the new way. We want you to work in the new way. That's what, that's what I heard. Yeah, exactly. And, and the unfortunate thing is companies do this all the time with really good intent, by the way. They actually do want to change. They actually probably do want you, Lauren, and your new way of working. The problem is they haven't had the other conversation internally, which is we're hiring people who are doing things differently on purpose and you should let them and you should support them and we're going to try and do things differently. The other people are just sitting there going, we're just doing work the way we always have. How come you guys are doing it wrong? Right. Yeah. And Lauren, the first wave of culture change is really, really hard in any company. Or maybe this is a, like a big company that they've been through this culture change multiple times and this is just the latest iteration of the change. But whatever, it is very difficult and takes a big toll on people, both the new people and the veteran employees. It does. So who do you know who is leading the change? Do you feel like you have confidence that there is actually a vision for the change and there's a team of people? So you're not so isolated being, you know, new person working in new way? Um, sort of. So I, I definitely feel like the executives all the way up to CEO are 110% behind the new culture. They are the people who are speaking the vision and sharing that. And the HR team is definitely has an eye for here's where we're going and here's what we need to do in order to get mm -hmm. there. Really, this is sort of like there's this trailing group of folks who maybe either they haven't gotten the message or they've gotten and are just not moving as quickly as everyone else is around them. That makes a ton of sense, right? Either they, they don't exactly know what it looks like or, as you said, they're slower to make that transition. Yeah. So you said mm -hmm. in, in your notes that your supervisor, who's an old employee, is not practicing any of the new things that you're supposed to be doing. And that once your training was completed, your supervisor even said, oh, we don't do that here. Exactly. Oh, <laughs> man. You know, you can have executives talking about the vision, and that sounds great, but where that becomes made real is employee to employee, boss to boss. How do we do it in my job? And it sounds like that's where it's falling down, whereas the manager's not saying, here's how we do things differently and try and drive that. Of course, the business cliche is always that it takes a long time to turn a battleship, mm -hmm. right? Have you heard that one, Lauren? I've heard it so much, <laughs> so many times. I knew it. Do you want to blow up the battleship, Lauren? 
I do. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, Liz's point about finding people who are out on kind of the bow, if we extend that mm. metaphor, yeah. out on the bow of that ship, if you're in a big organization, it's very likely that there are pockets of kind of rebellion leaders, right, that are really out in front of that and finding them. Join the resistance yeah. within the company? You bet. Yeah, I think there may be, and again, I don't know your company or the way it works, but oftentimes companies going through these culture changes have little, small, like quick response teams, or there's an experimental product group that is forming. You know, if you can find your way into one of those teams where at least you'll be surrounded by like-minded people, your day-to-day might be more satisfying because I totally get where you are. You are not in a position personally to change the culture at a big, giant company. But if you can at least find yourself arms linked with other people who are using the same operating system you are, your day-to-day work will be more satisfying. Yep. Totally agree. And going back to those people who brought you into the organization, I'm guessing you interviewed with some fairly senior level people above just your boss. And it may be going back and having a conversation with them and saying, look, in no way am I trying to throw anybody under the bus here. We knew that we were coming in to do change. And is there a place where I can have an even bigger impact or a place where we can lead it in a way that's going to get us, right, the company and me, more traction? Because they may not know. They don't see it. They just assume they put you in and everything's yeah. going fine unless they hear differently. I don't know, Lauren. Has any of this helped? Definitely. <laughs> I, you know, it gives me things to think about, and I really appreciate that. I think finding others who are like me is definitely a great takeaway for me. Figuring out how to find my niche amongst, you know, the, the mm-hmm. kind of chaos <laughs> that sometimes happens is really important. Yeah, I think the only other thing we could suggest is one of the I hate my boss dress balls. <laughs> So we'll see if we can get you one of those. Don't bring it to work, but you can you can use it when you get home at night. Yeah. <laughs> that could change your career dramatically. Indeed. Your supervisor might get a message then. <laughs> All right, Lauren, thanks so much. Good luck with everything. Thank you so much. Thanks, Lauren. Bye. Bye. Before we get to our next questions, we have a favor to ask. We want to hear your crazy work stories. The really crazy ones. The craziest. Give us a call at 424-224-5711. They may end up on You Can't Make This Up. And if you're enjoying I Hate My Boss... For goodness sakes, don't keep it a secret. I'll bet you'll enjoy it even more if you have a friend who listens in as well. That way you can talk about what happened on the show. So tell a friend to subscribe to I Hate My Boss on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, NPR One, or wherever they listen to podcasts. Our next question comes from Megan, who writes, I work at a large nonprofit, and I'd love my job if it weren't for two awful people, one of whom is the head of the department. We'll call her... Big Boss. (laughs) Big Boss was originally hired to run a certain project, and she hired an assistant that we'll call Flunky. (laughs) Okay. I am totally bought into the story already. We got Big Boss and Flunky. Then my original boss was fired, and Big Boss was promoted from the project manager to the department head. Flunky did not get a promotion, but acts as though she's now second in command. Now, no one in our department can stand her, and she constantly passes her work off to other people or makes herself so insufferable we just do her work for her to shut her up. She's staggeringly incompetent, unable or unwilling to do even the simplest task and micromanages everyone else's work, even when she literally knows nothing about the subject matter that we were hired to be experts in. 
one project she took over is now a year behind because she has no idea what she's doing. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. The problem is that Big Boss thinks Flunky can do no wrong. Big Boss is only marginally more competent than Flunky is. Even when my supervisor and I sit down with Flunky and say, well, as subject matter experts, we'd suggest a different strategy. Here's what we can do to help. Flunky just goes to the big boss, who then tells my supervisor to do whatever Flunky wants. I can't tell you how many deadlines I've missed because Flunky has monopolized my time with her pet projects. Now, my supervisor is supportive, but her polite, careful entreaties to the big boss fall on deaf ears, and she isn't willing to do anything more confrontational. Big boss is, after all, my supervisor's boss, too. What do I do? I don't want to make trouble for my supervisor, but I absolutely cannot take any more of this. Thanks so much for any advice you can give. Wow. Okay, you know what? It is amazing to me how often it happens that someone has a blind spot, a complete blind spot about someone they have hired who is their who is their flunky. You know, have you seen it in workplaces, Larry? It's oh, like a thing. yeah, it's a it's a loyalty thing. You're never going to have any success telling Big Boss that Flunky is not getting her work done. Sounds like you've tried. Your supervisor isn't going to try. The solution to this isn't to like continue to try to prove that Flunky isn't pulling her own weight. We made this recommendation once before in a similar situation. Like when you say you're covering for Flunky I and knew doing you were Flunky's say work, that. I, I mean, agree. I don't think it's mean to say, well, quit doing that. Maybe it's time to let Flunky sink or swim. Couldn't agree more. And I would tell you one of the big red flags that I see here, Liz, is the notion of having a boss that you feel can't or won't stand up for you sufficiently. That's a real warning signal because employees flock to managers that develop them and grow them and help them get opportunities. And the exact opposite is true as well. I have a slightly more charitable approach to the supervisor in the middle here. Yeah, sure. Just because the supervisor could be the most realistic person in this entire scenario, Mm -hmm. could be the one that really sees what's going on. And so has the attitude like, we're not going to change Flunky. We're not going to change Big Boss. So let's just all go back to work, people. Like, which part of the serenity prayer is it that is about (laughs) understanding what you have the power to change and what you don't? It could be the supervisor in the middle is just really the most realistic person there. Look, that could be the case. And if he or she were giving that feedback to Megan, then I would be on board with you. But I didn't hear Megan say that. So it felt to me like she's feeling like her boss has kind of pushed a little bit and now she's unwilling to do yeah, anything and, else. I mean, we've all seen that where sometimes your boss is just so super political. Yep. They're not going to do what they need to do. And that is super annoying and is a sign that you should try to find yourself a different kind of boss. But consider the possibility that your supervisor might actually be the one who does understand what's really going on here and in their own way is telling you like, This we can change. This we cannot change. Let's just try to focus on what is within our control. And that might be a great conversation to go have, which is, is there something you're seeing that I'm missing here? I know, Megan, you said you absolutely can't take any more of this, and we can understand why. But we do appreciate your creative writing skills because your character names actually did make us happier at work today. Thanks, Megan. Next up, we've got a question from Jeremy who says, I noticed that a lot of your questions tend to focus on early career issues, so I'm wondering if you'd be willing to take a question from a mid-career person. 
So Jeremy, the answer is yes. I'm 41 years old and have been in healthcare communications of one sort or another for my entire career. My first job stretch was as a journalist with a medical publishing company working for their family of trade newspapers. Then, like a lot of journalists, I made the jump to the greener pastures of PR and started working in the communications department of one of the larger cancer associations. My career took off, and my reputation as a media relations person got me plucked to come work as the senior director for communications at one of the top cancer centers in the country, where I've been for the past two years. I have a lot of years of work ahead of me, almost as many ahead of me as I do behind me, I imagine. There are some schools of thought that say this should be my Pope job, and I should run this out until I retire. However, I get recruiter calls at least once every three months. A lot of these are non-starters because they would require a move across the country or they're in industries that I'm not interested in working for. But a few of them are interesting enough to pursue. So my questions, what is an acceptable amount of time to be at a job before I start looking around or taking these recruiter calls more seriously? I remember reading five years, but I'm not sure if the rules are different for senior level people. I'm sure it would look bad if I left after just two years, but would it look equally bad if I stayed for 15? Please understand I'm not unhappy, but I want to make sure that I continue to maximize my potential. Thanks for a great show. Thanks for writing, Jeremy. And let me start with one thing. There's no such thing as a pope job, okay? So remember, even the last pope quit. Number two, Congratulations, because you've already made one incredibly successful transition in your career. A lot of people have really wrestled with that transition, and it sounds like you've done a great job with that. You've also positioned yourself into a business that is growing dramatically. It's changing. Obviously, healthcare is one of the growth industries and will be for the rest of your life. You know, you say you you probably have as much ahead of you as behind you. Yes, for sure. So what that means to me is there are two kinds of opportunities for you here, Jeremy. One is that chances are your company is going to continue to grow. And even though you already report to the CEO, you might find exciting growth and all kinds of new opportunities within your current company. So you don't necessarily have to go anywhere. But I think you should take some of those calls, have some of those meetings, really understand what those other opportunities are for you. There's no harm in talking to these recruiters and just beginning to imagine if there's something else out there for you next. If I think about the leaders that I've worked with, they get calls all the time. And most of them, their approach is, I'll always take the call. I'll always listen because you never know. It could be the opportunity of a lifetime that you never dreamed of. And yet for some people, that's really hard because they feel like somehow it's disloyal. I know. Yeah. Right. I got to say, I just gave you that advice to take the calls. I never did when I was in your situation. Oh, interesting. Or I rarely did. If I was having a bad day, I did. Like, <laughs> yeah. Damn these people. I'm going to talk to this recruiter. Right. But most of the time, I just felt like it was just I didn't have time or energy and I was happy where I was. Yep. So if you're curious about what's going on in the rest of the world, you can take these calls. And the most practical part of your question was, would it look bad if you left after just two years? No. No. Two years is a perfectly reasonable amount of time these days to come into a job, do work, check some boxes, create some success, and then potentially move on to something else. I think I would close with Jeremy by saying, I know that it'll look really bad if I leave in two years. I, I would challenge that assumption. Yeah, that's I actually, true. I don't think it's true. Just be thoughtful. And obviously you are. That's why you wrote to us.
Now we've got an email from Joe who writes, Hi, Liz and Larry. First, I have to say I appreciate the advice and comic relief you bring to the Daily Grind. Nice. Thanks, Joe. Uh, Second, I need some advice on workplace guilt and knowing when it's time to move on. I'm at a job that I'm told is a good opportunity, but I don't see it. Also, my boss has mentioned on more than one occasion how he'll get people in, they'll get some training, and then just leave for something else. I've seen some red flags and can understand why they left. The company culture is very old school mentality and just negative. I feel guilty wanting to learn as much as I can and then pursue other opportunities. I feel like I'm using the company, but what do I really owe them? How do you know when it's time to leave and how soon is too soon? Keep up the great work. Much love from Texas. So let me take on the first one, which is what do I really owe them? Well, you owe them a good day's work for the job that they're paying you to do, right? There's a contract between the two of you, even if it's not a physical piece of paper, right, that says we're bringing you in to provide some value. That can spill over. We've had this conversation. That can spill over into misplaced notions of, well, if I'm considering something else, then I'm being disloyal. Absolutely not true at all. And with regard to the second piece, how do I know when it's time to consider leaving? When you start asking the question, I think Mm -hmm. that's probably exactly the time. When it begins to percolate for you, there's something going on in the back of your brain that's telling you, I'm seeing signs that this isn't going to last for me. Joe, two things jump out to me in your email. The first is just the whole concept of guilt. It's just not productive for you to be feeling guilty. If you are conscientious and putting in a good day's work and really doing what you are hired to do, then anything else that you're thinking about for your future, you don't need to feel guilty about that. Try to put all of the guilt aside. It's your life, Joe. Just own it. The second is, it sounds like you're not the first person to get into this environment and feel like it's kind of a dead end. So just another reason not to feel guilty. They have a cultural issue there. You say very old school mentality and just negative. Like I could never work in a really negative environment. That would just drive me crazy. It would make me unhappy. And it seems like the pattern at the company existed before you got there and will continue to exist after you leave. So you just need to find what's best for you. Be conscientious about your job, learn what you went there to learn, and then think about where you can go, where it won't be so old school and it won't be so negative. One of the things I think of when I think of old school is jobs versus careers. In the old days, people joined and they stayed on for forever, but it was because nobody really left. It wasn't what people did. And too often, companies create, I need you to do this job. They're not actually thinking about attracting really bright people who want to learn and grow and then move on in their career. It's like, no, 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 no. I don't want to talk about that. I just want you to do this. If you're in a job... Use that job to add the value that you get paid to add, learn what you need to learn, and use it to go find a career. Yeah, and to be fair, great companies do think about your career path. They do. But most companies do not. That's your job, Joe. And it sounds like you are. So ditch the guilt, and you will find the right place for you. Larry, lessons learned today. Everyone who wrote to us was super conscientious about their work and their commitment to it. And I am really impressed just with the quality of their thinking about what is the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do, both for themselves 
and for their company. It is hard to wrestle with those questions of when do you move on? What do you do? But these are all people that have 100% legitimate questions. And as a result, worries about how are they going to know? How do you know when it's time? I was struck with the same thing, Liz. And I I think that the conscientious people, the ones that are worried about doing the right thing, meeting their obligations, being accountable, are also the ones who spend time worrying about, am I being disloyal? Am I leaving too soon? You know, am I asking for too much? Which is That's part so of, interesting. Yes, right. It, it's part of what makes them so wonderful to work with because mm-hmm. they are the responsible ones, the accountable ones. And yet, I think they put them themselves in a tough mental place sometimes because they create this guilt. And yet there are a ton of people that are out there thinking about what do I want and where do I want to go? And they're not thinking about any of these questions. Right. They'll just blow off any company at any time. Yep. So everyone that we talked to today, we appreciate the fact that you're being so thoughtful about this. And it is your thoughtfulness that is killing you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. your, your thoughtfulness is keeping you up at night. It's certainly going to be something that is already contributing to your being successful in your career and you being fulfilled. And that's the word we come back to so often, right? Mm-hmm. Fulfilled in the workplace. And that is finding that right balance between helping you move towards what you want, but also feeling like I'm doing what I signed up to do. Yeah. Well, that is just about as much wisdom and conscientious behavior as we can possibly stand in one show, Larry, right? So what can we do? It's time to move on to You Can't Make This Up. But we have a special guest star here in the booth with us. Hey, guys. Cerise is back. Cerise is back. (laughs) I hope this You Can't Make This Up isn't about us. Oh, definitely not. Okay, good. Oh, okay, thank then God. we want to hit that dish. When Tell she us all when about she it. walked in the booth, I'm like, oh God, Liz, it's gonna be us. <laughs> no. This one actually happened when I was still in college. I worked as a radio personality on our station. And it was a lot of fun. I don't have any complaints about it, but there was one night that I couldn't get to work. I was really sick, laid up with the flu, and I asked one of my fellow resident advisors, RAs, to go ahead and fill in for me. She said, no problem. I already know how to work the switchboard. She had another show that aired on a different day than mine, so I thought it would be okay. Oh, good. I'm glad she had another show, that it wasn't just right down the hall, like, <laughs> yeah. you go do it. All right. Right. So I give her the rundown on my show. It's a hip-hop show. She's like, we're in business. Okay. I don't think about it. I go to sleep. I wake up in the morning to about 30 missed calls and about 41 text messages. 41, if I'm not mistaken. (laughs) Yeah, not like you remember or anything. (laughs) Right. So what had happened was she decided to go to this shift after a frat party. And we all know what happens at frat parties. She was completely wasted. So none of the songs were played. So she couldn't even operate the equipment. No one gave commentary. Luckily, there was a feature on the board that played songs automatically, but she hit it with her elbow, and what people heard instead was her swearing profusely into the microphone (sighs) for about an hour and a half before (gasps) she passed out on the switchboard. Okay, we should not laugh because that is terrible. But because in broadcasting, like the FCC gets called in on some stuff like this. Right. Wow. (laughs) The good news in this. Did you lose your show as a result? I did not lose my show as a result of this. Okay, that's all we care about. Cerise is you. (laughs) What I gained was this really funny video of her doing all of that. 
and then falling asleep on the board for four hours. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Well, that you can't make be, that up. No. I'd like to get a caller who would call in who actually heard that show and give, <laughs> give us that take on it. Right. Anyone in the Boston area, please call in if you heard that disastrous broadcast. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Therese. We are always looking to hear your crazy work stories. So give us a call at 424 224 5711 or email us where I hate my boss at wondery.com. We'd also love to hear what you think about our show. And the best way to do that is to complete our audience survey. It only takes five minutes and you can do it straight from your phone at wondery.com slash survey. If you're listening on a smartphone, just tap the cover art to see the episode notes and you'll find a link to the survey right there. You'll also find our phone number and some great offers from our sponsors. If you want to support the show, always go to casper.com slash boss blueapron.com slash boss, ziprecruiter.com slash boss, and audible.com, Liz? Slash boss. This episode was hosted by me, Liz Dolan, boss emeritus and satellite sister, and Larry Seal, CEO and founder of Engaged Leadership. The original theme song was composed by Martin Blanco, produced by Cerise Castle. That's me. Special consultant Julia Smith, engineered by Misha Stanton, executive producer Jeffrey Glazer, created and executive produced by Hernan Lopez for Wondery. Remember, workplaces can feel crazy. But you don't have to. Mm-hmm.